Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I've never been comfortable with the term anti-aging. In fact, today it's a whole medical specialty. I don't think anybody is really capable of turning back your chronological age, but I do believe there are secrets to maintaining your vitality as we age. And if you've never heard the term sarcopenia and only osteopenia and osteoporosis, I believe you will surely learn something very important on today's podcast. I you know I remember when I was a 25-year-old medical resident doing internal medicine training, one of my lectures was by a famous orthopedist at the hospital, Dr. William Hamilton. He worked on a lot of the ballet dancers and he was giving a lecture on back pain. But it was interesting because he opened the lecture quoting, who I didn't know at the time, Betty Davis, the famous actress, saying, getting old ain't for sissies. And again, I was 25 years old and I, was, I thought it was sort of a curious way to begin the lecture. And it didn't really mean a lot to me at 25 years old. But as I've aged, as I've taken care of patients that are elderly, I came to understand the meaning of that quote a lot better. Growing old can be painful, humbling, and at times a depressing experience. But maybe it doesn't have to be. I sometimes think about to the movie Cocoon, if people remember that, where somehow in the movie they figure out how people to stay vital. And, and you see some of the elderly geriatricians jumping cannonball style into a pool after they emerge from the cocoon. But life is not the movies. And my guest today, Dr. William Evans, has spent his career looking into how we can all remain vital as we age. His early work at Tufts University showed that even geriatric patients in their 80s can build muscles and cardiovascular endurance to improve the quality of their lives. And later, he worked with astronauts to show how all of us can reverse muscle wasting. His two books, which are really two of my favorites, I keep them close to me on my, the shelves, are AstroFit, which was the astronaut program for anti-aging. And the other one was something that I first learned about Dr. Evans was called Biomarkers. And this was actually in 1994 when I was at a conference with Dr. Dean Ornish. And uh, one of the speakers there was George Leonard, who was a very interesting guy, a martial arts expert and journalist and writer. And he said it was one of the best books that he had ever read on staying healthy. So back then I got a copy. So with all of that intro, I'd like to welcome Dr. William Evans to the podcast. Thank you. It's, it's really great. And, and I really appreciate your introduction and the way you kind of framed it. Because too often there, there is a whole host of people and researchers that are interested in anti-aging. And by that, what I mean is that they're interested in, in, is there a way to extend how long you're going to live? And there's some interesting research along those lines, but really the practice of geriatric medicine, as you said, is trying to keep people functional, trying to keep people independent. And the way you framed it up is, is actually perfect because that really is what our whole goal is. And when you start talking to very old people, their interest really isn't to live to be 120 or 130. They just don't want to go to a nursing home. They exactly. just, they really, exactly. you know, their interest is just being at home and being independent. Exactly. That's such a great point. Brings to my mind, you know, and sometimes we may get into this too, what role genetics plays in this, but it's funny. I'll never forget my, my wife's grandfather on her paternal side. He lived to 102, 103. And he was extraordinarily vital. I mean, he had ramrod straight posture. He, he played golf a couple times a week, mentally super sharp. It was, it was the kind of thing you dreamed about. And he lived a super high quality life until his last few months when he did get sick and had kidney failure and, and he passed away. But it, he was like a testament to what I think we all would love to have. And unfortunately, we sometimes see, as you know, and you know, in your work, we see people in their 70s or 80s start to really deteriorate quickly and almost like before they really want to. 
and what can we do about it? And I think your books address that. So the first thing I'm going to go to, because we're going to kind of jump back and forth between your books, because I think some of it overlaps and in good ways, to the 10 biomarkers that you point out in your book, Biomarkers. And I'll kind of go through the list and, you know, we'll touch on a few things, a few things I may not go into depth about because I think they're more metabolic and I think they're important, but I wanted to get to especially the physical aspect. So let's, I want to understand first about muscle mass again. Can you remind me again what we mean by that and different aspects of muscle strength? And again, what you address immediately in your books is sarcopenia because most people know about osteoporosis and osteopenia, but they don't understand. Exactly. Well, it's, it's very interesting. And in fact, our, our very latest research uh, it brings this all back home. So I was the first to describe this condition we call sarcopenia, which as I described it, is the age-related loss of muscle mass. And it was my idea that muscle, the loss of muscle mass would predict some distal outcome like risk of disability or risk of falling down or mortality even, just as osteopenia, which is the loss of bone density, is highly predictive of a fracture. Now, in the intervening years, there have been a lot of research using what I think are inaccurate measurements of muscle. They use, they measure lean mass. And so the, the field has evolved such that lean mass is not that predictive of outcomes. And so there has been this idea that perhaps muscle isn't so important. And I and my colleagues now have invented a, a new method to measure how much muscle is in your body. How's that? How do you do that? With a very simple test. Really? And we've now published about eight or nine papers on how important muscle mass is. And, and I'll just describe it very briefly. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I, I've never, I don't know if I've ever heard of this before. It, it, no, it, it's new. And in fact, I've got five NIH grants now to use this method in various populations. Oh, and we're about wow. to introduce it into the Framingham study. Oh, wow. So, you, so everybody sit in your chair and get, <laughs> get ready for the breakthrough information. I love having this. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So you probably heard of creatine. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, 98% of all the creatine in your body is in muscle. And the muscles don't have any capability of synthesizing or making creatine. It's all made in the kidney and liver. And then it's actively transported into muscle. And creatine serves an important purpose in muscle. So our idea was that if we could measure the total amount of creatine in your body, we would have a beautiful method to measure muscle mass. And so the way that we do it is we use what's called a stable isotope label. It's a deuterium label that we put on a creatine molecule. Subject swallows it. It gets transported to all muscles in the body. And then the beauty of creatine is that it's converted into creatinine, which is lost in urine. So after we give subjects this little capsule of deuterated creatine, we simply take a, a urine sample, just a spot urine sample, and we look at how much of the creatinine has this deuterium label on it, and it tells us exactly how much muscle you have. Well, that is fascinating. No wonder I haven't heard of this. Now, what I wanted to just take back to the listeners to tell them practicality, you know, it's interesting getting my medical training and still to this day, you know, I typically order blood chemistries. And it's interesting because creatinine is, again, something I tend to only focus on with the kidney. Right. You know, when I look at a patient's BUN, blood urea, nitrogen, or creatinine, I'm looking to see, are they having any type of what we call renal insufficiency or the kidneys are not working properly? But I do remember being warned in my medical training that both ways, when someone has a huge muscle mass, you know, like right. bodybuilders, yeah. stuff like that too, that could be artificially little or, or just elevated. Yeah. And the same for people, unfortunately, that might have been in the hospital for weeks or months. Exactly. Or wasting away. Exactly. So, but your test, as, as amazing as it sounds, does sound a little bit complex. It sounds like, again, a little more of a research test. Do you think this will ever get to the, in a way that we can use, you know, in, our, in our offices? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you just, for the practitioner, it's almost like an oral glucose tolerance test, if you think about it. 
patient swallows a pill and produces a sample. That's all. Oh, okay. All right. So they would swallow the pill and then produce the urine sample, and that would give you- And then send it off. You send the urine sample off for analysis. And what we're going to get to later in the lecture, because I don't like to keep people hanging, but that we're going to do something about this because that's the other whole key. I always believe in medicine too. I don't like just testing. I mean, it's great for research, but if you can do something about it, that's even well, more important. I think importantly, and, and this is maybe the, the take-home message, we, we just finished a series of studies in a very large cohort of old people. And what we were able to show is muscle mass is highly related to a risk of disability. Mm. It's highly related even to cognitive function. Mm. It's highly related to mortality among older wow. people. It's wow. more predictive of a fracture than bone density. Wow. So I believe that. And I think that's so important. And, and again, just to bring a little bit of correlation to the listeners too, you know, again, in my clinical practice, I practiced 30 years. And besides being a practicing doctor, which I enjoy doing in immunology and holistic medicine, I'm sort of a student of medicine and I'm a student of people. And what I've noticed over my career, and I, t- I tell the patients these stories, why it's so important to be physically active, that I, I used to really see that patients that had very physically active jobs, like one patient, I'll never forget, once he came in, he must have been 83 years old, and he just had very, you could tell, you know, his muscle structure was very, very good. And so, you know, I'm taking care of him for whatever, you know, condition he came in, but I asked him, what was your, what's your job? You know, he had stopped working, but he used to work for the telephone company. He used to climb up the poles (laughs) to fix the the wires and obviously not the easiest job in the world, but clearly having done being physically active like that for, you know, many years, he, he was in very good shape. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the very first studies that ever showed that was in, is in London and a famous investigator looked at the, the, the men who escorted people up and down the two decker stairs Mm. versus the drivers and they mm-hmm. found that the guys that were walking all the time, they lived significantly longer than yeah. drivers. And so, you know, again, it's an early example that physical activity, however you measure it, even yes, your super job, point, which is so hard in this day and age, dude, now where everybody is no on a computer question. for hours at a yeah. time. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So I, I think we covered that and I want to move on, but sure. then we're going to get into some really interesting questions about like how you increase your muscle mass, whether yeah. it's through cardio or weightlifting as you talk about in your books. But so what's the difference between muscle mass as one of the biomarkers and muscle strength? I mean, you think if somebody has a lot of muscle mass, yeah. Well, isn't that just assumed they're, they're strong, they have a lot of muscle strength or no? Well, I mean, there is a relationship between strength and, and muscle mass, but there are a number of different components of strength. Okay. And so we know that if you have to lay in bed for a, a while, you get weak and you get weak pretty fast. And much of that has to do with how the brain can recruit muscles to generate force. So when, when we do our strength training programs, and I know we'll talk a little bit about that or a lot of Yeah, we will. We're going to get into that, sure. We see an immediate increase in strength. I mean, so fast that it's not accounted for by an increase in muscle. Interesting. And what that really is, is that mm. the brain, the motor cortex, learns how to recruit more muscle cells. Wow. And it does that okay. within three or four days. Wow. You're answering a question I had earlier on too, like why we lose our muscle mass so fast. You know, one of the biggest fears I think for patients and, you know, obviously honestly, even doctors and healthcare workers in this COVID, like God forbid you get sick. God forbid you're intubated. We know that when you're laying there in a bed for a couple of weeks at a time, I mean, your muscle mass just dissipates and then you see, you know, you hear the stories, God, thank God the person recovered miraculously, right? But they're, walking with a cane and a wheelchair. I mean, this is weeks, months of uh, rehabilitation and recovery. So you're saying that, again, the, I never thought of it this way. So the brain is the key component of muscle strength. And it makes me think, are you telling me, Dr. Evans, too, that if, God forbid, somebody was, had an injury or something, they're laying in bed for months and they really can't move the muscle or something, either through electrical stimulation or trying to almost even imagine like you're tensing the muscle? 
Can that help? Yes. There, there are data that would, would tell us that even doing bedside activities and strength training will, will, will have some, some effect. And you're right that you know, we did a, a, a study funded by the National Institutes of Health. What we were interested in, how do old people respond to bed rest? We put healthy old people to bed for 10 days and found that in just 10 days, they lose more than a kilogram of muscle just from their legs. And that's three times as much as we see with young people. Every time you bring up something really interesting, I sometimes have to bring up these clinical things for patients. And the thing I wanted to say was that back in the day too, I remember my, the, the cardiology doctors that used to teach me, they go, you know, and this was in the late 1980s when I did my residency training, they, they said, you know, back in the day when they trained, a person would have a heart attack and, and they were on strict bed rest for, for 10 days, two weeks. And they would typically sometimes have a second heart attack because obviously they weren't moving around. And the other story, which makes, you know, I thought I'd bring up at some point, but I want to bring it up here, was there was a very famous orthopedic surgeon at Harvard. I think Dr. Wait, was the ortho, yeah, I think he was an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Dudley White. And when he used to make bedside rounds, you know, and this was like really like in the 50s, I think he took care of Doc, uh, President Eisenhower. But when he used to make bedside rounds and he had to decide on a surgical candidate, he'd be, you know, surrounded by his like 10 residents following him around. And, you know, they'd be assessing whether this patient was stable enough to go to surgery. And the thing that he would do is he would pull the covers off of their, you know, their body and look at their legs. If their legs look strong, he said, okay, they're going to make it through the operation. He didn't need an echocardiogram or something to determine their heart function. Sure. And as you know, the early um, cardiac rehabilitation was very controversial. That is mm -hmm. taking someone who's just had a heart attack and then putting them through a rigorous exercise program was thought to be potentially very dangerous. And, and, right. and the, the father of cardiac rehabilitation, uh, his name was Herman Hellerstein, who's the Cleveland Clinic. And um, he was also one of Eisenhower's physicians and tried to get him up and moving around. And we now know wow. it, it is fundamental to how cardiac patients can function. Okay. So you're saying again, too, so that the muscle strength, and, and we're going to get into how you increase that, and I assume muscle mass, but it's, it's, it's really more a combination of the brain-muscle connection. Yeah. Strength has many components. And I mean, can you, be, can you have a small muscle mass and be strong still? I mean, is that, I mean, I'll give you an example. If you're a weightlifter or somebody, but you're 130 pounds, but you can lift a lot for your weight, but you don't have a big muscle mass because a guy that's 240 pounds might have a lot of muscle mass and maybe he lifts the same or a little bit more than you. Is that, is that well, like there, a there reasonable? Well, there probably are, are a couple of different components to muscle strength. So when we do our strength training programs, in the initial month and a half, most of the gains in strength are due to how the brain learns to recruit these, these mm. units, the muscle cells. Okay. That, that plateaus after a while. Okay. And then the only way to get stronger is to get bigger muscles. And again, we can see that in our studies in older people. They continue to get stronger throughout the year, but in the first month or two, they get strong very, very rapidly. And that's due to this kind of brain uh, recruitment of muscle fibers. Let's talk about this now, the two, because I mean, it probably makes sense. So like, I, again, I remember reading in your work, so you were having these people you know, lift weights. Let's say you see an 80-year-old person in a nursing home and they look very weak and frail and you guys start coming in saying, okay, let's start lifting what? Two-pound weights, three-pound weights, four-pound weights? They were lifting at 80% of their maximal capacity. That's the thing that we did that was really new that no one else had, had done before is we use what's called high-intensity strength training or resistance training. And we knew that from what young people had done and, and what the research had shown is that in order to get stronger, you have to lift a weight that tires you out after only about eight or 10 lifts. That is, if you can lift a weight 20 times or 30 times, it's not going to make you stronger. Well, I want to ask you this, and I've pursued this through my career, even on myself, and I've got injured so many times, and I tend to always go even with light weights. It's like... 
if you go too rapidly or you lift something too heavy, don't, you know, you tear sometimes the tendons and not necessarily the, I mean, the muscle might get strong, but the tendon has to hold that muscle. How do you avoid the injuries in these people that are kind of frail to begin with? Or Well, Well, remember, the muscle is about as strong as the tendon. So in a frail person, as you said, you know, our, our oldest in our studies was 98 years old, right. lifting at 80% of their one repetition maximum of their maximum lifting capacity, that might be eight pounds or nine pounds. And that is not going to tear or rip their tendons. Okay. And the nature of what we did, also very important, was that it's progressive. As I said, the brain starts to learn to recruit motor units rapidly. Okay. So every week we would remeasure how strong they were and have them lift heavier weights. What did you see? Like, was there any traumatic cases that you remember? Like where there was a guy just, or a woman just like sitting in a chair looking, honestly, unfortunately hopeless. And you guys start on the program and then all of a sudden they're lifting things or getting out of their chair a lot better. I mean, did you see some of those dramatic things? One interesting story I'll, I'll tell you. In a, in a, yeah, in a, we, sub- we like stories. Yeah, in a subsequent <laughs> study. So we were doing a, a study. In this case, it was in patients with renal failure, and they were very weak. And we had one guy that told us this story, is that he lived in a rural area, and his mailbox was about 100 yards from his house. And he went out, got his mail, and then he fell down. And he couldn't get up. And he literally couldn't get up. And he was down mm. for hours before somebody mm. came and helped him up. Now, right. we had him strength training, and his kids came to see him. And they just never forget. They came to my office, and they said, this is a miracle. I've never seen it. Because mm-hmm. their father was now going up and down stairs easily. They said, mm. we had no idea that this was possible. And, and wow. so applying kind of maybe logical kind of physiologic uh, ideas to older people was new. And it produces what are often kind of miraculous things. You know, in the nursing home, we had people that would tell us, I no longer need to ring for a nurse in the middle of the night to use a toilet. I don't need my walker anymore. Or, you know, so those are huge. Yeah, it's huge. It it has an enormous uh, effect on the quality of life of those patients. Who did the work with those patients, by the way? Was it like physical therapists, your researchers? I mean, like, what was the training that these people had to? That's another story. We, we, (laughs) and I don't want to disparage physical therapists at, at all but they have their own way of doing things and they were different right. than, than what we wanted. Who's we? I mean, your, your team, like your, my your research, research team. team. Mm-hmm. We, we got a large grant from the National Institute on Aging to do this study. Mm-hmm. So we essentially hired a recreation therapist okay. and we said, this is what we want. This is how we want to have them tested. This is what they, we want them mm-hmm. to do. And the therapists in the, this was in a place called the Hebrew Rehab Center for the Aged in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. And, and the therapists, they, they couldn't believe what we were doing. And when the results came out, you know, we were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and we were featured on the uh, CBS Evening News and, and 2020 did a feature on what we did. And, and suddenly everybody got religion. Yeah, you have to break some eggs sometimes. <laughs> and it's, but it's good. I mean, it's good. I, you know, it's just that people have this view of aging, as you say, that aging isn't for sissies. That's for sure. Yeah, oh, it's tough. And anything that's worth having is sometimes you got to fight for uh, it. You got to fight right. I tell my patients yeah, a lot too. Hard. You know, like, but you, you know, because again, when we were in our twenties, maybe your thirties, you feel a little bit invincible, and you know, you look at an older person, yeah. you're like, I just, you can't relate. And as you get into your, I think, 50s, 60s, little tweaks, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you start to think of it. And then as you get closer or you see your parents age, you start to get a little nervous and you say, oh, gosh, you know, I hope I can do a little better this way or that way. And and I think that's what your work does. I'm going to move on to the next thing because I want to get through so much sure. stuff, but I think we're, we're covering a lot of key things. So let's talk about the basal metabolic rate. And you sure. mentioned in your books also how that goes down and that affects a lot of things. So can you explain that to the listeners? Sure. Yeah. So when you're sitting here, when you're resting, we all burn calories. And the amount of calories that you burn at rest is your basal metabolic rate. And we know that that goes down as you grow older. Mm -hmm. What that translates to 
is that you need less food to maintain your weight. If your metabolic rate is going down uh -huh. and you're not that active, then you just need a lot fewer calories to maintain your weight. And many of us don't decrease our caloric intake. We're still hungry, or we're just bored. I mean, what's the? <laughs> is it well because because appetite doesn't necessarily follow this basal metabolic rate. That doesn't decrease either, obviously. <laughs> and the basal metabolic rate, the decline with aging, is absolutely and totally a product of the loss of muscle. Okay, that's muscle, that's the key thing I know that right. you brought out in your books. Because what I want to make the point to the listeners, and, and probably nobody can explain it better than you, is that. People start to realize that they're like, I, and I get this all the time from patients. I know my own self. I'm like, gosh, how come I, you know, if I eat a little bit less, I'm not losing weight. How come if I exercise a little bit more, I don't lose weight? And I guess with the premises in your book, which uh, also, I don't know if you know them, the people out in, uh, I, I think they're very interesting, Jersey and Anela Gregoric. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're body lifters and they've written some books on this subject. You're not researched like you, but that it, it really comes down to your, your muscle mass and everything because we always think that, gosh, you know, by running, riding, swimming, we can increase our basal metabolic rate, but is that fairly limited? Like you really need the muscle mass to? Yes, yes. Okay, yes, that's definitely. important. So maybe explain that a right. little bit more. So swimming and running, that it elevates your metabolic rate while you're doing the exercise itself. And right, right. But 30 or 40 minutes after that, your, met your metabolic rate is back down to where it was. Muscle is what we call a very expensive tissue. And what I mean by that is muscle has these little, what are called sodium and potassium pumps in them that require a lot of energy to maintain muscle uh, as opposed to fat, which, you know, we don't need much energy to, to support fat. Muscle is an extremely expensive tissue and it's metabolically expensive. So the more muscle you have, the greater your metabolic rate. That's why men typically need to eat more calories than women, because there are differences in metabolic rate that are totally a result of differences in the amount of muscle. And we lose muscle as we grow older, and that drives this metabolic rate down. Does doing cardio, I mean, like a lot of times too, what I find personally, so we all only have so much hours in the day to sometimes sure. exercise and do stuff. And I'll give you an example, too, for myself. Like sometimes in the nice weather, I wish it was a little nicer now than it is here in the cold Northeast. I would go for a bike ride first, and then I try to lift some weights and do something. Too. But I would find that I was tired after I rode my bike for, let's say, 10 miles. And I don't know if somebody had a choice or should you not do things on the same day? Or is it? would you say that the lifting is the priority? If you have a half hour in your day to do something, what's, what's more important? It's a good question, and we all have a limited amount of time that we're willing to spend for right. exercise, irrespective of how much time we may have in the day. Right. But here's the thing. The primary deficit that occurs as we grow older is weakness. Right. And what we have found and other people have found is that weakness determines how physically active you are. So one of the things that we've seen, and we've done a couple of studies like this, where all that we've done is strength training three days a week. And what we found is that as weaker people become stronger, if we keep records of how much they do, they climb stairs more often. They get up and move around more frequently. They are far more active as a result of being stronger. Now, this is in people that, that you know, may be somewhat weak already, older people. But to maintain your muscle mass, you don't have to do much. It's just two days a week, maybe. Well, okay, but what, I'm going to give you a sort of a specific example. Like, for example, I like bike riding. I just yeah. find it relaxing. I like I the nice too. weather. I, and I, find, I know you, read, you mentioned your book, how you were in Arkansas. It was like 100 yeah. degrees, and you would have yeah. a bike ride in the morning. I yeah. remember everything about your book. Yeah. But let's say I love bike riding because it's, it's beautiful out. You know, I don't want to be indoors, you know, in the beginning of the yeah. day, you know, to lift weights or something if I have time. I want to be out there riding. And I found that, let's say again, especially over the summer here, you know, in the Northeast, you know, that my legs got definitely got stronger. Now, yeah. how does that not correlate? Like, why would I have this, you know, instead of doing, let's say, some kind of leg lifts or something? And there are obviously cyclists who are in amazing condition who probably don't even lift weights because they can't handle the extra weight in their body because they're competitive. But, and also there are people that, you know, I see out in the streets where I live who are walkers. I mean, they get up in the morning, they like to go for a walk. It's, re it's mentally relaxing. Obviously, must have 
benefit, you know, again, with their muscles and their cardiac capacity. But are you saying don't shortchange the weightlifting for that? I mean, it's just too important. Uh, well, Cause I know uh, in your, actually in your book too, you did both. I remember your routine. I was like studying it. You know, you would go for your, I don't know, 10 mile bike ride. And then you were doing the uh, resistance stuff. So, yeah, so, so I, tell I, us. I was lucky because I have a, a lab where I work. So, or yeah, you have the built in gym. <laughs> I had the built, the built in gym. Here's the thing. Cycling, walking, all those activities are fantastic. They, improve your cardiovascular function, they increase your life expectancy, they help you prevent diabetes and chronic disease, but they don't prevent sarcopenia. Uh, even let's say, you know, people who do water workouts, like, you know, with resistance, because it's not the same as weights, but it, it's easier on their joints. I mean, the same sure. thing with biking. You know, again, as we get older, our, your joints hurt, you know, and or you- Sure, you know. the resistance exercise that people can do in the pool, because it is resistance exercise. Yeah, I like, I do it, I really um, love it. Can, in fact, strengthen your muscles. But as I said, if you can contract your muscles against a resistance mm-hmm. more than 20 or 30 times, which is what you do in cycling, sure, it's not going to increase the amount of muscle you have. So you just plateau. So it's just really doing cardio, but it also you're saying it doesn't give a lasting benefit on your basal metabolic rate. And going back that's to your one of that's, that's okay, correct. so that's really important. You no, know, because again, too, and the basal metabolic rate, as you said, is very important because if as it goes down, we're just going to normally gain weight, right? Is that, is that the, that's the, that's the negative. That's pretty much it. You know, okay. if you need fewer calories and you don't decrease your calorie intake. Oh, that's a good point. That's why people gain weight. Mm-hmm. You're going to gain weight and you're going to gain fat. And yeah. uh, older people tend to gain more fat around their uh, gut, their belly, the visceral fat, which sure. is, uh, increases risk of disease. Well, well, that's our next marker. We're going to get to body fat percentage and, or there are all these tables that are based on height and weight, right? I mean, you know, there's the BMI index kind of thing. And so tell us about that. Like, you know, again, I know I'm sure in the research lab, you guys probably do the calipers and all that stuff too. But what do you think is realistic for people in their 60s or 70s? I mean, again, they're not, I mean, as much as we don't like to be Olympic athletes, we're not. We're <laughs> everyday people. <laughs> right. So obesity is defined by body mass index, which is weight over height squared. It's not a measurement of percent body fat, but it's okay. One of the things we do know, and this is an interesting one that has been controversial in the past, but older people that gain a little bit of weight live longer. So for right, that's right. That recently came out. That was that's the good news, everybody. Yeah. So for, so for example, an ideal body mass index for someone in their twenties and thirties might be twenty five, or twenty four, or twenty five. Mm-hmm. For an older mm-hmm. person, ideal body mass index is 27. So it's a significant increase. And there are maybe a lot of reasons for that that we won't have to go into. But one of the things we, we also know is that older people that are fat, that have a body mass index maybe above 30 or 31, their body fat is hard to move around. And so... It, it maybe imparts some degree of risk for disease, but it's hard to move around. It's hard to get up. And so we find that for people that are overweight, you know, they become less active just because it's not so easy to move around. So weight loss for older people is hard because their metabolic rate is lower and their need for calories is lower. It's hard, but maybe even a small change in body weight might be of some real benefit. You know, it's interesting you say that too, because I I forgot where I was reading this, but they were saying something like, also like, I think for every five or 10 pounds, I think it's an extra 70 times pressure on your knees. Yeah. Uh, I think I was right. So it's like, again, because you think, oh, I gained another five, 10 pounds. I mean, whatever. It's not such a big deal. But 70 times more pressure on your knees as you get older. I mean, yeah, you're not going to want to get out of your chair. And and in fact, one of the things that orthopedic surgeons often ask their patients to do before they succumb to the surgery is to try to lose weight. And then sometimes you eliminate the need for surgery because now it's a lot easier to move around. So, so weight, the body fatness is, is a tough one, and it's tough because uh, older people uh, or all of us have a hard time losing weight, but it's particularly harder for people over the age of 60. So would you say, again, just to tie in a bunch of things we've been talking about up till now, but if, again, this Jersey Gregory 
makes a big case about this, but I, again, I, I trust a lot of your research and work. If you, if you had a little bit more time, would you head toward the weights or would you get on your bike or, you know, make sure you went for your jog or your, your long walk if you're trying to get that body fat percentage down? Probably the weightlifting is, is the better way okay. to do it be, and, and right. because of two things. One is that it increases your metabolic rate. And number two, okay. we find that people that get stronger tend to become more active anyway. Okay. So that's, that's the key. I mean, I think, I think that's the, really the take-home message. They said for anybody listening here, being wanting to be more vital and, and as we age and, and if they're struggling with the weight thing, I mean, it's something to really remember that the weight training obviously done properly could be really important. Uh, I want to move on to aerobic capacity too, because that was again one of your biomarkers. And I want to ask you, again, I want to know your definition, of it, but I also, what comes to my mind is, Things that people like doing, I mean, like some people love running, so they run five miles. I like to play tennis. I was a tennis player in college, and I started playing back again now after many years when I healed up after some surgeries. And and I know it's interesting because it, it has also to do with fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers, you know, certain kind of quick sports. So tell us about aerobic capacity, what's important, what activities help that. Sure. Uh, so aerobic capacity is the maximal capacity to use oxygen. Obviously, extremely well-trained athletes have the highest aerobic capacity. The highest I've ever measured was an athlete by the name of Steve Prefontaine, who- Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was the incredible miler, right, from Oregon. He was, yeah, he was the middle distance runner. Middle distance, right. And I'm sorry, middle, he yeah. had a, a aerobic capacity that was in like 84, 85 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram. Well, is that some of that genetic? I mean, I'm sure it is, right? There's got to be some- it's, it's, It is partially genetic because he was higher than like Frank Shorter, who we had measured, who was the premier marathon runner. Uh, you know, he was in, incredible. So part of it is genetic, but and it, it goes up for people that do a lot of aerobic activity. I mean, that's the way you, you train the heart to increase its cardiac output. Muscle itself becomes more oxidative. And by that, it means, I mean, it, it uses oxygen far more efficiently. So all of those things are good. And, and Aerobic capacity is also associated with decreased risk of disease. So the way that I look at physical activity and exercise, if I tell you, Dean, that you shouldn't be doing that tennis or, or biking, but rather swimming. Yeah. And you know, well, okay. You know, and I'm after terrible. Two, I'm a terrible swimmer. After so that's a week the, or two, I, you'll say, hi, this is, hi, this sucks. I don't want to do that. Right. So, Whatever it is that you really enjoy doing, that's what you need to do because that's the thing that you're going to carry with you through the rest of your life. And strength training is one of those things that often people don't think about so much. And you don't have to do it very much. That's the important thing. Unlike right. aerobic capacity, if you want to increase your aerobic capacity, you have to do aerobic exercise almost every day. Well, that's like the cyclists too. They tend yeah. to have like amazing, those yeah. VO2 max yeah. things yeah. And, and how much lactic acid they can tolerate right. the buildup. But I always want to bring that to the point of about the sweating. You know, there's a lot of activities we can do that, you know, are fun. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure people golf, which is it's good to be out in fresh air and stuff like that too, but you're not sweating. And does that have to do with like in reaching that aerobic capacity? I mean, like, should you be breaking a sweat? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And, and I golf every weekend. So, <laughs> and I walk okay. 18 holes, which is about right. nine That's good. miles. That's good. It's fun. And I carry my bag and I sweat. <laughs> oh, you sweat uh, carrying the bag. Huh? Yeah. So, but, but yeah. So I, and I remember one time we had a subject who we were measuring their body fatness and she was talking about uh, something must be wrong with me because when I exercise, I never sweat. Yeah, And I thought, just as you were saying, well, you're not really exercising, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, because you're right. Exercise has to be a sufficient intensity. Well, in should a, you even be sweating when you wait, when you do weights? I mean, you know, it's well, interesting. you don't have to, no. Unless you do them without too much rest in between right, sets right. and all that stuff yeah. like that. Because the exercise that we have people doing is usually like three sets of eight repetitions. So they'll lift a weight eight times, then they'll rest. Then they'll lift eight times, then they'll rest, and then they'll lift eight times again. 
and that doesn't necessarily break a sweat. Sometimes it does. Right. Yeah, and I know when I do that, I, yeah. I don't even feel anything. It's just what well, I want to get to after is I get so sore two days later. I can yeah. sometimes, I'm like, what the hell happened? Well, that, that muscle soreness is an indicator that your body is adapting to the exercise for sure. That's good or bad? That's good. That's really You're good. Like, oh, God, it's painful sometimes. I'm like, why the heck did I pick something else where you know when you got to do your regular stuff? So, okay. Uh, but And what about this whole thing about the fast twitch, slow twitch? Because, again, I was reading from different things. Again, I love telling stories. Like, you know, I, I, I was always a big fan of Sports Illustrated. I used to love that magazine. <laughs> and they always had very interesting articles. And one time they had an article on this Austrian-American citizen. He had lived, you know, his early life in, in Austria. And, you know, in Austria, they, I guess their big activity is skiing. So he used to walk up the mountain and ski down, you know, it was wonderful. And he came to the United States and I think he ended up moving to Hawaii in the story. And he was a mailman. The whole time he was pretty active, but he wasn't in great straight shape and he was small and he ended up being, becoming very weak. And I don't know why, but in the story they talk about, I guess, because he won a, a medals, he started entering sprinting competitions. He ended up being the record holder for like the 90-year-olds and the 100-year-olds on sprinting. And I mean, the time was some 20-year-olds could walk a little bit faster than he did it. But, you know, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, here he was in races, national races at 90 and 100 years old. And he actually said he had to do a little bit of weightlifting to get, you know, to get himself stronger. So my question is, again, also, if I have a little time, I mean, is like in the tennis or like doing a little kind of sprints more beneficial than going for a two-mile jog? Well, it depends on what your goal is. It, it all depends on what your goal is. It, you know, if your goal is to be goal healthy. Goal is to feel good, have yeah, fun, and yeah. uh, stay healthy. Then, then, you know, the sprinting, you don't have to do the sprinting if you don't want to. Well, I mean, I, I think it's fun. If you, yeah, I mean, yeah. is it, but is there a value to that? I mean, because, again, you're it, yes, trying to, yeah. they say you can't change your fast switch and, and slow no, twitch, you right? Can't. I mean, no, that, no, you can't. But here's the thing. You can't or you can? You cannot. Oh. There is an age-related loss in the type 2 or fast-switch fibers. Yeah. They tend to go down and die. Right. It makes sense. You know, To maintain your s- slow fibers because those are the ones you use all day long. Right. And you don't recruit. We don't use our fast-switch fibers very much. And so if you do that sprinting sort of exercise, you're going to recruit those fast-switch fibers and help to maintain their, their strength. So that's a good thing, though. That's a good thing, think. and that's what yeah. weightlifting does. It also okay. recruits those fast-switch fibers yeah. and helps um, to maintain them. So, yeah, so yeah, I have a, a great story. I was privileged one night to have dinner with Sir Roger Bannister. Oh, and, wow. And I would I like to have been there. <laughs> and I don't know the story of Roger Bannister, you know, for your readers, Sports Illustrated called it the most important sporting event of the 20th century. Wow. It was breaking the four-minute yeah, mile. Yeah, breaking the four-minute mile. Yeah, after he had done a, he was like working at the hospital. He kind of yeah. came over after right. he and- was a, uh, He was a physician. Medical student. And, and, yeah. and uh-huh. he didn't have time to right. do the kind of long distance training. Right. And he had heard about this new type of training in Sweden, high intensity interval training. Oh, HIT, right? That's what, now it's called HIT. It's all famous, right? It was called fartlek training in Sweden. And okay. he started doing it. And he was able to push his aerobic capacity up rapidly rather than having to do this long, slow distance training and, and mm. uh, was able to break the four-minute mile. And it was funny. He said he used to send a medal to anybody else who would break the four-minute mile after him. And he said until high school students started doing it and then <laughs> couldn't do it anymore. Wow. Fascinating. That is interesting. You know, I want to move on. I know there's a couple of the markers, but I, I don't even want to get into them here about the blood sugar tolerance, cholesterol, blood pressure. These are things that we do know about and, you know, people realize they're important. And obviously bone density, you mentioned, I mean, people are so concerned about it, but I, I thought it was so important in your work and your books you know, about how the sarcopenia is, can really be the, the, the more deadlier thing. But I want to ask you one last thing on the, on the biomarkers before I go into some other issues. The ability to regulate your internal body temperature. Why is this important? And how, how do you know whether you're not regulating your body temperature correctly? Well, one of the things we know is that when a heat wave moves through a big city, it's the old people that die. Oh, that's a good and, point. And, yeah. and there are a couple of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. One is, is that with advancing age, we don't get as thirsty. There's something called adipsia, and we lose right. our thirst. Mm-hmm. Secondly, old people don't have as much blood volume. Thirdly, 
old people don't sweat as much as young people do when exposed. Does that have to do with hormonal regulation, like with with ADDH or something? Well, or? it has to do with a, with a number of things. One is that there's just not, there's not as many sweat glands as we were okay. able to lose sweat glands. Oh, and, um, and so all of those things combine to, to mean that an older person, you know, when exposed to extreme heat, they can suffer heat exhaustion and heat stroke. But the, the most important thing is, is the thirst. Even when older people become dehydrated, they often don't get thirsty. And that's kind of... Well, so how do you improve that? Or just you should just, or should you just more consciously hydrate? You know, because I see this with younger patients. You know, I have people that come into my office in their 20s and 30s. They're carrying yeah. around these yeah. giant, yes. you know, liter water. And I'm like, I'm not so sure you need that all day long. Yeah. But then yeah. an older person, like you're saying, just is not very cognizant of how important it is to... That's right. You know, especially in, in retirement communities and in nursing homes, it's a big problem. They have to force fluids. Old people just don't get as thirsty. Well, maybe they also they so, can get bloated, their stomach, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's not that so much. I think it, it's just that there's a, a decreased desire to drink water. I mean, it's just a drink. It's, right. it's, it's, so you, okay, so that's a really important point, though. So you're just saying, though, I mean, anyone who has a relative in a nursing home, I mean, obviously older people, I mean, I'm sure I'm thinking of my parents, too, because also, unfortunately, too, they associate drinking more with going to the bathroom more. That's right. You know, well, that's right. Part, of, part of the problem. That's, that's another issue is that many, for, for women in particular, is urinary incontinence is, is an yeah, so enormous kind of... and unrecognized problem. Because well, you know what it's also, you never know where you are. You know I mean? You're where you're going to be. Yeah. If you're not near to a bathroom, especially a bathroom you're, you're comfortable with, that yeah. becomes an issue. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so the ability to regulate body temperature both in the heat and the cold, is, is impaired with aging. Yeah. And for, for the heat, it's, it's drinking. And of course, exercise itself does what we call, it, it expands the blood volume. So you get greater blood volume so you can lose more fluid without compromising the cardiovascular system. Uh, I want to move on to a couple of things with the assessing the, the markers. And one of the things that always also struck me too, very interesting is like I guess you have in, I think it's in the biomarkers book about the one mile walk test. And I used to yeah. think, oh, like, what is this? You know? And then I realized like, again, I've, I've got the amounts, but if you can't walk a mile, like in 10 or 12 minutes, you got a problem. And I realized that because, you know, when, unfortunately, when you're seeing older people with canes and this and that too, the fact that they're, they have some type of limitation. They obviously couldn't walk a mile in 10 minutes, 12 minutes. And that's a bad sign, correct? Well, you know, since, since we published that, there are a number of studies now that show that just your habitual walking speed, just the, the walking speed that you choose to walk at, not how fast you can walk, but your habitual walking speed is a powerful predictor of mortality. Wow. And it's really quite astonishing. Wow. And we've shown that that's related to aerobic capacity. Right. So that as you lose this aerobic capacity, just getting up and moving around becomes a higher and higher percentage of your max. And we, we showed that in, in people that walk very slowly, even at 0.8 meters per second, they're walking at 90% of their aerobic capacity. That's what world-class marathon runners are running at the end of the race. Mm. So they become exhausted. So they choose not to walk and they become more exhausted still. So you're right. Walking ability is, is a big deal. And, and in fact, for many geriatricians, they think that that's a, that's a vital sign, maybe more important than blood pressure in mm. predicting a risk. Just to go back to ask you again, too, because I know we're, we're kind, of, kind of nearing the end and I, uh, you have another engagement, but I would just have so many interesting questions to ask you about the injuries. Have you come across anything about how to decrease getting injured, even though, I mean, again, if you do proper technique, unfortunately, injuries always hit at your weak point. If you know, sometimes you could be lifting, I know myself too, I could be lifting my arms, my shoulder, also my neck tightens up, you know, and maybe again, it has to do with other factors, but that and like the delayed onset soreness, which tends to make inhibit people a little bit. Are you saying we just have to live with that? I mean, just realize that's a good thing or? If you're starting an exercise program, the delayed onset soreness is a result of some microscopic damage that you do to your muscle. It Tears, repairs yeah. and gets stronger. Right. And if you keep doing that exercises, right. you don't get sore anymore. But the, the orthopedic ones, those are the tougher ones. And, and you're right. Some people do everything right, and, and then they get tennis elbow. It's hard. And we try to tell people, 
that's fine. Let it rest. When you exercise, it shouldn't hurt. And so if it hurts, don't do it. Just exercise the other joints that, you know, that you can move to a different activity, but you're right. The orthopedic ones take a while. And and that's again, if you're lifting, not such heavy weights, can you do it every day? Should you always take a day or two rest? Yeah. If you're doing weightlifting to get stronger, and again, this is the, the, if that's the goal, then you should do it probably no more than three days a week. Because you want that recovery of the muscles. You want the recovery. I mean, the recovery is Even important. if it's light in the beginning, whatever, yeah. too, just, yeah. you know, there's no point. Right. You know, get into the rhythm, right. get into the, get the brain activity right. exactly. going. Do, your your okay. other activities are important, but the weightlifting, you don't need to do it more than three days a week. And if you start doing mm-hmm. it more, then you become a little obsessed <laughs> and you mm-hmm. might get some overuse injuries. Let me ask you, too, as we're winding down, too, again, I, I might have mentioned this earlier, but just again, cardio before weights, weights before cardio, does it matter? If Um, you had to choose cardio before weights, because what cardio does, it warms up your body, makes your joints a little more flexible. Right. That's what I feel. I feel like I'm just, I'm a little more energetic. You're less prone to injury. All of those things are good. Okay. Yeah. Right, so that's a good thing. Yeah. And what about also to you know again, our society is so obsessed with the, the six pack. I don't know the two pack. I'd be just glad to have flat abs. How important is the core? Because you know again, you look at I. I've had a lot of people that I respect saying you know sit ups aren't the best thing for you. It can hurt your back. A lot of now they're talking about doing the planks, and I would assume a lot of other activities you're you're using your core. Like I know like when I serve in tennis, you know, you're using your core. H- how important is that? You know, versus other muscles like your leg muscles. Sure, well, leg muscles maybe are the most important because they're associated with mo- your mobility. Okay. Obviously, but, but core is also important because it helps to keep you erect. It's kind of the way you move around through the world. And so there are some lower intensity core exercises you can do. Sit-ups probably aren't the best, but lying on your stomach and trying to extend your back, that's, that's oh, yeah, like the, the Cobra, right? You have that in your yeah. the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. So I'm, I know that you're going to have to run and this was a huge privilege and honor for me because they said, I've been a fan of yours since 1994 or five. And I strongly recommend any of the listeners to get his books. They're still available. I've gotten them on Amazon. Astrofit, I, I keep in my office. I show patients because I think the way you diagram the whole routine, the exercises, how to do them properly and safely. I think pretty much anybody can follow. And I'm sure if they were with a physical therapist or a trainer, they could achieve to do this. And the benefits are beyond important. So Dr. William Evans, I want to thank you. Well, this has been a great discussion anytime. All right. I I hope I get to me. We'll come back to finish up some more and please keep me informed on your work because I'm a fan and a participant. All right. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group or at DeanMitchellMD.com.